cases like this, the potassium can be really tricky. It's kind of unique in the way that it poisons patients. You wake up in the morning, you think one thing about the virus, and within 24 hours, that may be completely different. You may need to stretch the rules a little bit. We may not be past the peak of hydroxychloroquine exposures. It's funny in a dark humor sort of way. Is it the drug or is it the disease? Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So glad for you to be joining us on this podcast, a very, very special podcast. We are welcoming back a voice that you haven't heard in a little while here on CCPEM and also tying Dr. Hayes back into some important COVID updates. So I want to welcome back Dr. Brian Hayes. You heard Brian many, many months ago and have heard him throughout many years here on CCPEM for all things pharmacology, toxicology related to emergency medicine. So Brian, welcome back. It's so good to have you back on CCPEM. Thank you, Mike. It's unfortunate that it's during this time of COVID, but I think there's a lot of good learning to be done here. So thanks for having me back on. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because so many things continue to be up in the air, continue to evolve in the coming days, coming weeks with COVID. We've mentioned on other podcasts that you wake up in the morning, you think one thing about the virus, and within 24 hours, that may be completely different. There may be new therapies that are promoted within the literature, new therapies that may be promoted on social media and various other venues. And some of those therapies may be well-founded, some not so, but many of them do have significant toxicities. Would you agree? I would agree. Well, to that end, before we get started, since it's been a little while since we've had you on the podcast, can you update folks, where are you and what are you currently doing? Sure, so about, I can't believe it's been four years now ago, I moved back home from Maryland to Boston area and I'm working at Mass General Hospital and we've been pretty hard hit, honestly, by this the COVID situation. I work in the ED and I do toxicology and then I teach at Harvard Medical School as well as an assistant professor of EM. And to that end, you just published an article. This is EPUB ahead of print, open access for everyone and it is literally hot off the press. It looks like you published this article with colleagues from the Harvard Medical Toxicology Fellowship, along with colleagues perhaps in New York and at Mass General, dealing specifically with COVID-19 therapeutics and toxicities. And we will certainly put a link to your article in the handout for this particular podcast. But to get us started, Offline, we had talked about a case that you had had that came in dealing with one of the toxicities we'll talk about. So perhaps let's start there and then have you walk us through the really pertinent toxicities that you think we as emergency care providers, along with intensivists who are listening in, the things that we need to know. Sure. So we'll spend the majority of our time today talking about this first drug, which is hydroxychloroquine. And when COVID first started to emerge as a real problem, one of the potential therapies was hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, although that one's been on shortage and not as readily available in the United States. And this is a drug that's normally used for SLE. It's sometimes used for malaria, but it potentially had some antiviral properties even back during Ebola. And so they thought that it might be something that could work for COVID. Now, since then, we know that the better trials, the randomized control trials have found that it's probably not very beneficial in most patients. So early on, we were treating all of our inpatient COVIDs with this medication, and now we are not except as related to trials. But in the meantime, we've had three cases 
two overdoses intentional and one of a patient that was had COVID, was admitted to the hospital and developed some toxicity just from therapeutic use of the drug to treat the virus. So it's kind of unique in the way that it poisons patients and the treatments are interesting also. And so I think from an emergency medicine and critical care perspective, it's worth talking about what it does and how to treat it if you happen to see these cases come through your units. So the primary way that it causes toxicity is through sodium channel blockade, in the heart, potassium channel efflux blockade. Those cause QRS and QT prolongation respectively. It causes significant hypokalemia, which is a problem which we'll talk about in a minute. And it causes a lot of CNS issues like seizures, it causes CNS depression. And so it kind of has a lot of things that we need to treat right away. The case that I want to introduce you to first is one that was a young guy who came in after overdosing on a lot of hydroxychloroquine about two hours afterwards. He was slurring his speech and a little bit altered, but still okay enough to talk with us, tell us the history. And we got an EKG and his QRS interval was around 135 milliseconds and his QTC was approaching 600. And we were a little worried because he was early on in the course and it probably would get worse. And we knew that we should probably start treating him. And one of the primary treatments for QRS prolongation is sodium bicarbonate. However, as I mentioned earlier, hydroxychloroquine causes a significant hypokalemia. And because we didn't know his potassium level yet, if you give sodium bicarb, it can lower it further. And we, so what we didn't want to do is cause any ventricular dysrhythmias because of worsening hypokalemia while we were in the effort to treat the QRS prolongation. So the first teaching point I wanted to mention here is that if you end up in this situation, you don't have a potassium value yet, and you don't know if it's safe to use sodium bicarb, you can use 3% sodium chloride. Because remember, we're trying to load them up with sodium to overcome that sodium channel blockade. So as long as you're getting sodium into them, the drug is not as important. 100 mLs of 3% sodium chloride contains the same amount of sodium as 50 mLs of your normal 8.4% sodium bicarb. So 100 mLs sodium chloride, 3%. Same as one amp or one vial or one syringe of your normal sodium bicarbonate. So that's teaching point number one. Love that pearl. So his potassium came back at 2.9. So we gave him the 100 mLs of sodium chloride. Potassium came back at 2.9. So we were kind of glad that we had not overloaded him with sodium bicarb. But once we had that back at 2.9, we started a sodium bicarb, gave him a load, started on potassium repletion, gave him a little bit of magnesium for his QTC prolongation. And this is where the other therapies are a little bit interesting. So in addition to those things, there is some old data that says that if you give these patients high-dose diazepam and epinephrine, they survive more than patients who don't get those things. This hasn't really been validated with hydroxychloroquine as much as chloroquine, but it's what the toxicologists recommend. And so this is what we did. So when I say high-dose diazepam, I mean one to two milligrams per kilogram. So just think about that. 70 kilo patient in your ED, they're going to get 70 to 140 milligrams of diazepam. That's a pretty hefty dose in someone who's not seizing and they're not in alcohol withdrawal. So you're used to giving that high of a dose to someone who may look somewhat okay. Also, it's not very soluble in solution. And so what we did is we gave them one mg per kilo. We diluted it in like 500 mLs of saline and let it run in over 30 minutes. But the trick is, even after you give this bolus, you then have to continue the therapy for 24 to 48 hours. And that gets tricky too, because remember, diazepam contains quite a bit of propylene glycol to make it soluble in solution. 
And so if they're on it for a long period, you could run into propylene glycol toxicity up in the ICU at some point. So we gave them the bolus and then we scheduled intermittent Q2 hour diazepam to keep the amount. Then we scheduled Q2 hour diazepam to keep the right amount going throughout the course of his stay. And then the final piece to this, go ahead, Mike. To that bolus and then already presenting with somewhat waxing and waning mental status, he ended up needing to secure the airway or intubating? That's a great question. And the answer is yes. We debated back and forth in the ED whether or not we should do it now. What we were worried about is his potassium level, despite repletion, kept dropping. And we were concerned that if we added on induction agents and other things that we could precipitate a dysrhythmia. So we actually waited until he was in the ICU and had a little bit better control of the potassium before we intubated him. The reason that we would have done it earlier in the ED was actually not as much due to his CNS depression, although that was an issue, but it was because he started vomiting quite a bit and we were worried about an aspiration risk. You actually reminded me of another teaching point too regarding the potassium. In cases like this, the potassium can be really tricky to replete. It's already low. You're giving them bicarb. We're going to talk in a second about epinephrine infusions, which also can worsen hypokalemia through the shift into the cells. And so just remember that the guidance that you have at your hospital for repleting potassium is not really specific to a really serious, crazy case like this. And so you may need to stretch the rules a little bit to get safe levels of potassium into these patients to make sure that they don't have a dysrhythmia from the hypo-K. So just another teaching point there. And then the final piece is the epinephrine infusion. Along with diazepam, epinephrine infusions seem to be associated with less mortality in chloroquine overdose. And so we started him on epinephrine infusion right from the beginning. He ended up being pretty hypotensive not too long after presentation anyway. But in this case, I know normally we would use norepi as our first line for a lot of these types of cases. But in this one, epi should be your first line. And then you can add on norepi or vasopressin or whatever you want for your second and third line. So key takeaway points from hydroxychloroquine toxicity, we're seeing it, and we may be seeing this, even though the recommendations have said really probably not, some intentional ingestions, pay attention for ventricular dysrhythmias, QRS, QTC prolongation, severe hypokalemia, and then in terms of treatment, sodium bicarb or that 3% sodium chloride, epi infusion, and then diazepam infusion. Yeah, that's right. And I want to just stress to you that even though we may be past the peak of the first wave of the coronavirus, we may not be past the peak of hydroxychloroquine exposures because remember, lots of people went out and got lots of this drug when they thought it was going to be helpful and they have it around and there's kids in houses a lot now because we're all still under confinement in most states. So it is going to be available and you may continue to see these types of overdoses even as we move forward. And also, People are down right now. We're seeing more suicidal ingestions and those types of things, more depression. So just not a good combination of factors. And this could still be a problem going forward. Those are really, really great points. Now, in terms of other toxicities we've talked about on other CCPEM podcasts with you, Brian, we've hit on things like lipid emulsion therapy, maybe ECMO. Are those applicable here in these cases or not really? That's a great question. And so let me first tackle dialysis. This drug is not removed by dialysis very well, so that probably wouldn't be an option. ECMO could certainly be an option if you need to, particularly for patients that are just waiting for drug to metabolize and hopefully the toxicity will go away and the heart would be preserved. Lipid emulsion hasn't been studied in hydroxychloroquine. We had it at the bedside. I was worried about this guy crashing. 
And so if things had gotten worse or he had went into cardiac arrest, I would have actually used lipid emulsion, but we ended up not having to use it in this guy. Well, let's move on to another category and a medication that's certainly getting a ton of press and attention just in these last few days as we record here on May 7th is remdesivir. Can you bring us up to speed on that? And are there any toxicities associated with this medication? Yeah, this is an interesting one, and we're going to be seeing more and more of this. So my hospital was one of the clinical trial sites for one of the first clinical trials that was done in the U.S. And so for a little while, it was only available by clinical trial. But then very recently, just last week, the FDA looked at some data that we can talk about briefly in just a second and provided an emergency use authorization. So now hospitals are starting to be able to get some of this drug to treat a very specific subset of COVID patients. Now, keep in mind the trial that was published in New England Journal wasn't really a trial. It was more of a big case series. There was no control group. It's an interim analysis. It didn't actually show a significant benefit, although it trended, if I can use that term, which I hate to say that it might be better and it might lead to a couple of days less of disease burden. So we still don't know where this will end up kind of ending and in terms of its role in therapy. But as of right now, it is approved for this emergency use. The tricky thing about the trial is that it did report adverse effects, which is great, but it's hard to say what's real and what's not because we don't have a comparison group to say, oh, this was also prevalent in them. And so the biggest one was LFT elevation, which is tricky also because we know the virus does this. And if you've seen labs for these COVID patients, they present very similar to each other. And they always have this slight degree, two to three times normal ASD, ALT elevation. So is it the drug or is it the disease? And so we don't really know. Other things we might expect with this are peripheral neuropathies, metabolic acidosis. And this is just based on the fact that it's a nucleoside analogs like some of our HIV drugs. And so we can kind of extrapolate a little bit what the side effects might be, but we haven't really been able to tease that out quite yet in the trials. Well, let me ask you a few other medications that actually have been discussed and some controversies around them over the last few weeks in the setting of COVID. And that is the use of azithromycin, and then ACE inhibitors and NSAIDs. Where do we stand on those medications as therapeutics and then potential toxicities. It's funny in a dark humor sort of way that we've always sort of said azithromycin is one of our best antiviral agents because we seem to use it to treat a lot of viral infections in the outpatient setting. However, it was thought that combining this with hydroxychloroquine might be beneficial in treating COVID. And it turns out it probably isn't. And it actually causes quite a significant increase in QTC prolongation to the point where our hospital ended up, when we were still giving hydroxychloroquine, we ended up changing out that if patients also needed antibiotics for pneumonia, they would get doxycycline preferentially over azithromycin because of that QTC prolongation risk. So it may seem benign, but when the drugs are mixed together and there's other things going on, it actually can be quite significant. So something to keep in mind if you're giving azithromycin. And then regarding the ACE inhibitors and the NSAIDs, we haven't learned a ton since this started, except in the last week, which is great. So let me start with the ACE inhibitors. There was thought, and there still is thought, that the way that the virus interacts with the cells is through ACE2. And so there was concern that potentially either ACE inhibitors could worsen disease burden or they might be helpful. And we don't know a whole lot about 
the pathophys still, but we do know that in three large trials that were just published in New England Journal last week, that there was not an increased risk of worse outcomes in patients on ACE inhibitors. Cardiovascular disease is a risk factor for worse outcomes, but not being on an ACE inhibitor. So any patient that's on an ACE or an ARB and they're asking you questions like, is it safe for me to continue this during COVID? The answer is absolutely yes. They should definitely continue their medications. They need to keep their cardiovascular risk under control because that's the risk factor for worsening disease. The other one that came out was ibuprofen. This one, when the disease first started being a big thing in the US, we were following WHO recommendations and they initially recommended against using ibuprofen because there seemed to be some data that said that NSAIDs worsened outcomes. Turns out this was not true. And they revised their stance. And still to this day, as of May 7th, we are okay to use ibuprofen. I understand that some folks might be worried, as particularly for critically ill patients. So if you want to avoid that, it's fine. But patients in the outpatient setting, they feel bad with this disease. And so I'm okay with NSAIDs. Acetaminophen is okay. They can even take those two together if they need to, to help them feel better. But in terms of worsening disease burden, it doesn't seem like it does. Outstanding pearls, Brian. This article definitely I very much enjoyed reading, and I think it's definitely one of those must-reads for those of you that I think, well, probably all of us that are treating COVID patients. You go over what we just talked about, hit on highlights for those pearls. There's a number of other things in the article that may not necessarily be as applicable to the emergency medicine provider. Having said that, anything else from the article or your experience from a therapeutic standpoint that you think would be beneficial to convey to our listeners? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. It's not related to talk, so shifting gears, but more for the critical illness. We had some shifts where we were intubating eight, 10 patients a shift. We're past that now, hopefully to stay that way. What we found though, is that these patients were particularly difficult to sedate post intubation. And part of that could be that it was really severe ARDS. It also could be that a lot of these patients had normal mental status at baseline. I mean, they were intubating them due to respiratory status and not due to a CNS related cause. But either way, it was really difficult once the induction agents wore off to keep them properly sedated. And so what we ended up doing is starting norepinephrine before intubation in most of these patients and giving them, in addition to either automate or ketamine, we give them a dose of midazolam along with it, number one, to help add sedation, but also because it lasts longer than ketamine and automate. So that way it gives you a little bit of extra time to get your opioids and your propofol or whatever else you're going to use sort of titrated up. And that seemed to help. And the other thing that we honestly weren't so good at prior to this, but we're a lot better now is if you're using an opioid for sedation and pain after intubation, those need to be bolused. If you don't bolus them, it takes a good hour or more before they really get up to the right level for the patients to feel the effects from it. So just an example, let's just say you start your patient on 50 mics an hour of fentanyl and you think that they need more. So you wanna increase to 100. Well, if I increase from 50 to 100, it's gonna take a full hour for them to get that additional 50 micrograms. So every time that you increase the dose or the rate on the infusion, you need to bolus them at the same time. And that applies to fentanyl, it applies to hydromorphone, any of these drugs. And honestly, we just weren't great at that prior to this. And we realized and learned that we needed to be better. And so that's one other change that we made that's really helped with the sedation post-intubation. Let me get a little bit more granular and go back to your RSI cocktail since you mentioned some midazolam. As an example, what's your typical dose of, of your induction meds? So we were using standard dose of Atomidate or ketamine, and then we were adding four milligrams of kind of like 
0.05 mg per kilo of midazolam along with that. And that seemed to help keep the patients sedated during that period when you're ramping up their post-intubation sedation and the atomity or ketamine wearing off. And then we were combining that with either rocuronium. Most of them got rocuronium, but succinylcholine we were using in our really obese patients. And then bridging them, if they needed to be paralyzed afterwards, we would give them vecuronium. We kind of ran out of cisetracurium early on, and so we were using either vec or rock intermittent boluses to keep them paralyzed if needed for ventilation uh, synchrony. Very, very helpful, Brian. Well, thanks again so much for joining us back on CCPEM. I think I say it after every time we record, but it's always too long between having you on the podcast here and getting you back. It's, it's so, so helpful, and you provide such insightful Pearl's expertise and wisdom. So my thanks for joining us here. And for those of you who have any additional questions for Brian, please shoot me, shoot us an email through the website. I'll get those over to him for his response. And please, please check out his article along with his colleagues. I think the lead author is Dr. Chari. It is in the Journal of Medical Toxicology, and the title is COVID-19 Therapeutics and Their Toxicity. So really, really nice job, Brian. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. I'm really glad we got to do this because we were supposed to be seeing each other at a meeting recently and we weren't able to do that. So at least this is the second best thing. So thanks for having me on. Much, much appreciated. Well, that's going to do it for this podcast. Looking forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.